This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we're talking about affirmative action. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing two major cases today that could determine the future of affirmative action in higher education across the country. Or rather, a lack thereof. While the U.S. Supreme Court seems poised to strike it down across the nation, freelance journalist Andrew Engelson reports on a reality that the University of Washington has already faced for decades. Washington state law has prohibited considering race as a factor in college admissions since the practice was banned by ballot initiative back in 1998. So if the Supreme Court rules against affirmative action, it's possible that colleges and universities across the country could look to places like the University of Washington to see how they have been approaching things. How has the end of affirmative action affected who goes to college? And how has the UW encouraged racial diversity on campus without considering race in admissions? And is it working? Two far-reaching cases before the U.S. Supreme Court today have the potential to overturn years of precedent. Supreme Court justices on Monday signaled they're likely to do away with using race as a factor in college admissions. So, Andrew, the reason we're talking about affirmative action as a country, again, right now, is because of two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now the case against Harvard and a separate but related suit against UNC Chapel Hill is coming before the Supreme Court. These cases haven't been decided yet, but um, because of the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, it's generally expected that the ruling will effectively end affirmative action as we know it. But in Washington state... Affirmative action has, in fact, already been banned for the past 25 years. That's right. So given that context, I was wondering if you could just tell me about what got you started on the recent reporting that you've been doing this spring. What did you kind of set out to do or try to understand? Well, I'd spoken with my editor about this, and we wanted to cover um, U.S. Supreme Court cases and looking at how they would impact Washington state. And we kind of looked at some of the major rulings and we talked about this one. And initially I was kind of like, well, I'm not sure we should, we need to cover it because if Washington has already banned affirmative action and the Supreme Court decides to ban it, uh, things won't really change in Washington state. But talking with my editor, we realized that uh, Washington is actually an interesting case study of what a state and what universities can do in that state when they don't have uh, affirmative action to fall back on. And like you mentioned, since 1998, it's been banned effectively in the state of Washington uh, because of an initiative. And so the idea was to look at what are universities in this case, the University of Washington, what have they been doing over the past couple decades to increase diversity uh, without that tool? And it's certainly a tool they would love to have, uh, but they don't have access to it. And so that was the idea was really looking at what can be done uh, in the absence of it, and is it effective? And I think the, the results are mixed. Before we get into that, I was wondering if you could refresh my memory, at least. Why did the state of Washington ban affirmative action in the first place? What was that about? Well, in the mid-90s, there was a, a debate going on in the United States uh, about affirmative action. And one person in particular, uh, Ward Connerly, was someone who was pretty actively uh, speaking out against affirmative action and saying we really needed to reconsider it. And he was behind an initiative in California 
uh, I think in 1996. From California tonight, a picture of how the nation's largest university system may be transformed now that its affirmative action program is going to be ended. Which was basically the first state to roll back affirmative action. And affirmative action had always been controversial. And there were even the rulings that were in support of it in 1978, I believe, uh, it was a mixed ruling. And so it was like, yes, we can allow affirmative action, but, you know, with some limitations. And so uh, Ward Connerly had successfully pushed an initiative in California. And then in 1998, as sort of the debate was continuing in Washington state and Tim Hyman, who you might be familiar with, someone who likes to uh, push initiatives in Washington, uh, teamed up with Connerly and put that on the the ballot and it, uh, it passed. You know, there'd been other debates in the state, you know, the Seattle's system of busing to increase diversity of its schools was was very controversial. And a case came out of that uh, that eventually went to the Supreme Court as well. And those basically ended by, you know, the mid 2000s. And so Washington state had was in the midst of this debate about, you know, is affirmative action necessary? Does it achieve um, what it's trying to do? And so that was the context. Um, you know, and it continues to be controversial. It's also been debated continually. I mean, you brought up in your reporting that it was only really recently that Washington brought the issue up again, right, in, in 2019? Yeah, that's correct. So there was a, a ballot initiative, I think it was referendum 88. And there's a renewed push to bring affirmative action back. Those in favor feel that certain groups have been marginalized and left behind. They feel that supporting R88 is a way to level the playing field. And it would have allowed affirmative action again in the state. And it was narrowly defeated, like within a 1% margin, I believe. So it was very close. Here's a look at the numbers so far. It is just way too close to call. And in fact, Governor Inslee uh, last year issued a proclamation sort of rescinding Governor Locke's proclamation that had, that was in support of the original Initiative 200. Well, in Washington, today is that day to do what is right. 23 long years after Initiative 200 was passed, and I'm doing what is right by signing Executive Order 22-02. which Effectively not doing very much. I mean, it was basically saying, you know, that we... We would like to be able to use affirmative action if we could, uh, but we still can't. You know, the fact that there was another initiative to sort of reconsider the idea, uh, it failed but by a narrow margin, suggests that there are still mixed feelings in the state of Washington. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's an issue that feels controversial and personal, like because you can imagine you would be in a situation where perhaps, you know, your child didn't gain admission into a university because they didn't meet a certain standard, you know, and maybe that standard is slightly different to allow for certain groups. You know, I interviewed someone, a, a conservative commentator, uh, who basically found that it just it's just not fair. But um, affirmative action is a it's it's one part of a calculation in terms of admissions, you know. So it's it's the whole picture, and like the University of Washington, for instance, still. They're not able to do race quotas, but they do, they look at GPA, test scores, but also people's personal history, their life stories, and, you know, do certain things to encourage people from different backgrounds to be part of their undergraduate class. You know, as a society, we're we're trying to understand, you know, what it is that's going to change these historic norms, right? And the the state is, is doing okay, but um, it's not necessarily meeting its goals, particularly among certain populations. 
And you recently, you spent some time specifically on the University of Washington Seattle campus talking to a bunch of people, including administrators whose job, part of whose job is to think about these things, to ask these questions and to really think about, you know, how do we encourage racial diversity on campus? What impact did they say that the original ban on affirmative action had on the University of Washington? For this article, I spoke with a a researcher who did a study on what happens in states that have uh, banned affirmative action, what happens in admissions among racial and ethnic groups. And both the academic uh, who published the study and also um, the folks at the University of Washington, both were saying that shortly after the ban went into effect, uh, admission rates declined fairly precipitously in the two, three years after that was passed, and then have sort of been gradually climbing upward. And there are various reasons for that. The University of Washington, I spoke with um, vice president for minority affairs there, and you know they have a very active recruitment program. They're very focused on reaching out to uh, high schools where there are high populations of black students, Latino students, uh, American Indian students. And one thing to note, too, is that um, when we're talking about underrepresentation uh, among minority groups, what we're really talking about are generally black, Latino, mixed race, uh, American Indian. Asian American students certainly are part of diversity, but they are not generally underrepresented in um, colleges and universities. And so, yeah, what happened was, yeah, you you saw these these rates decline. And uh, the the academic that I talked to who did this study in 2020, they found what they tried to compare was uh, the admission rates uh, at universities versus uh, graduation rates of high schools in those states. Mm-hmm. And so in the state of Washington, for instance, it's around 5% uh, of, of high school graduates are black. And at the University of Washington right now, it's I think 48 uh, percent of the student body, so it it uh, it approximately tracks with the state mm-hmm. uh, state's population. Latino population, um, there's a bigger gap, and these gaps they call them underrepresentation gaps. Washington is is not great, but it's not as bad as say uh, University of California at Berkeley, which in 2015 had a gap among those underrepresented groups of about 34 percent. Proposition 209 had a devastating impact on diversity on the Berkeley campus. Our um, percentages of underrepresented minority students dropped by 50%. And so, you know, those are things that they're seeing that that happened in these states where um, you didn't have the tool of affirmative action. And so, you know, the the researcher I was talking to said, well, um, one of the things he said that was an advisor had said to him years ago that was really striking is that nothing correlates with race like race. If you're trying to boost the numbers of people in certain categories, the best way to do it is to help those people out and, you know, make some allowances. Yeah, the University of Washington has worked really hard to bridge that gap. And I think they've made good successes. But again, it's kind of like treading water. Yeah, I mean, here I feel is kind of the big question. I mean, it's like, yeah, you've pointed to outreach. I mean, a lot of it does start with finding students where they are, um, encouraging them to apply. What specifically do you feel like the University of Washington, as, as far as you can tell based on your reporting, you know, has done in the absence of affirmative action? You know, what do they bring up as their most effective strategies over the years? I think it's a mix. You know, it's a mix of doing that outreach, of making sure that there are 
financial aid programs available. And then also, you know, setting up ways to create community, whether it's um, student organizations, clubs. I think the university is really focused not only, it's not only on encouraging people to apply, but convincing people that it's a space that they will feel comfortable at. You know, if you're a black student, you want to feel like you're going there and your peers are there and you're seeing people who are like you. And, and I think UW is working on that, but I think, you know, there's still a long way to go. One of the big things that I found in my reporting when I spoke with the vice president for minority affairs, he said, oh, you really have to go visit the instructional center. And this is a, a center um, at UW that is has a long history. It was um, created in the 1970s. It's 50 years old. And it's one of the first in the nation. It's nationally regarded. And it's a place where underserved communities can come in and get support. They can meet each other. They're getting tutoring. They're getting help. And they are being welcomed, basically. And having that community and having the assistance, because the University of Washington is a big place. It's tens and tens of thousands of people. And it can feel really impersonal. And so if you're uh, the first generation of someone going to college from your family and suddenly you're in this university in a big city, you've come from somewhere else, it can be an overwhelming situation. And so this center provides the skills. It helps students understand and navigate the system and navigate the bureaucracy. And there's just a lot of support there. And so I spoke with a number of students there who use the facility. And again, it, it's this feeling welcome. For instance, I talked to a student who is a, was a refugee from Bhutan who lived in Nepal and his family came to the United States as refugees. And his first year, he came here uh, during the pandemic and it was overwhelming to him. He, he felt lost and he, he was very frank and said he was depressed and uh, afraid of disappointing his parents. And, you know, those experiences can be really super hard. And he might have dropped out if it had not been for the center, which he was, you know, he found. And they were doing online support at first. And then really it, it helped him really find his way and really find his place there. And and through that, he found communities of people and he's also in student organizations. Um, and so it's things like that, I think, that that are much more intangible. They kind of also encourage those students to, you know, apply and, and feel like, yes, the University of Washington is a place where I will feel comfortable. Maybe I, you know, there are only 5% of the population is here, but I feel supported and I feel seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of college admissions is getting people to apply in the first place. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a strange thing because in many ways, you know, Higher education is often thought of as a high bar, and it can be very selective. And so, therefore, with historical structural racism in this country, that's why we're having this conversation in many ways. And yet, at the same time, these institutions are are trying to attract people. And part of that is just like, you know, trying to encourage students to to see themselves as students at this institution. The academic that I talked to who'd done the study about states that had banned affirmative action spoke positively of those sorts of efforts and obviously, you know, speaks well of things like the Instructional Center, um, recruitment efforts. But again, it is a really uphill battle. You know, you're dealing with years of structural racism, and that is not something to solve easily. You know, you can, there are other strategies, you know, you can accept the top 10% of every graduating class, or you can, you know, set economic targets, um, again, which are all allowed, but they, they don't correlate. They don't quite help you get at 
the structural iniquities that are happening. I mean, it, it really is, you know, it's this long legacy. And, you know, are you actively battling discrimination? Like, are people actively being denied uh, entry into universities and colleges because of their race? No. I mean, that's not happening. But you have this just structural legacy that is economic and racial and uh, addressing that is going to be a big issue. And, and taking that tool away suddenly um, leaves a huge gap. The students you talked to in the center, I mean, it sounds like they were feeling like that center was very important to them as, as a point of connection. These students of color you spoke with, I mean, did they feel that they saw themselves on campus? Did they feel like the representation was at a level that they would want to see? I think it's it's often the case, and like the vice president I talked to as well said that often he'll talk to students who say, you know, I'm the only black student in my class. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not uncommon. And yeah, this one young black student I talked to uh, was saying that uh, he feels that absence, um, but he's surrounded himself uh, with a, commu- a diverse community among his friend group and can find community. But again, it's it's noticeable. And I think that for him, it didn't feel like a huge drawback. It didn't, but it's, it's there. It's there in the background. And I think for a, a lot of his other friends, it does... Uh, it becomes a challenge to feel like you're in, you're in this little island in kind of a sea of of other folks. And, you know, diversity is complicated, right? I mean, you have um, lots of foreign students coming into the University of Washington now. And so that's a diverse population oftentimes. Um, but again, what you're trying to do is, is get at that underrepresented group, right? So like you, you may still have a very diverse university with lots of students from South Asia, from China, Korea. But at the same time, you know, you're trying to, you know, reach that American Indian population or Pacific Islander population. And um, and those are important, too, even if they're small groups. Yeah. And I, I do think that there are there is help and assistance at the University of Washington. Um, but structurally, I think there, there are bigger questions that, that need to be addressed. Right. I mean, it's not an easy problem to solve. It's not like the University of Washington has all the answers because they've been working on it for 25 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, given our expectation of the outcome of the Supreme Court's ruling, given that other states are going to be looking at Washington, most likely, what do you think, if you had to kind of (laughs) suss out a few little threads from your reporting. I mean, w- what advice do you think the University of Washington could give to other universities? Or what takeaways do you think these administrators do have? I think one of the big lessons is that it's it's really hard work to push diversity. It doesn't come naturally, I think. There's still these, you know, structural imbalances. And, you know, the UW talks about that, like, we're in this situation, we're in a, a global world that is incredibly diverse. And it, it's it's incredibly valuable as a student to ha- be surrounded by lots of different people from lots of different economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, different countries. And that's, that's a value to them. But to achieve that um, in a way that's truly diverse, you really have to work hard. You have to, and you have to dedicate staff and time. You can have a diverse student body, but you need to make it a priority and you have to actively, actively work at it and, and make that outreach. And, and I think they still feel like they could use a lot more and they could really do better.
Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Andrew Engelson and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Production assistance this week from Seth Halloran. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.